2, where he says these words, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, so hopefully we have done in the first section of worship as we confessed our sin, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You know what this verse means? This is a call, obviously, to God's word and to a time of fellowship. But it's more than just a call to come now and hear a sermon. It's a call, it's a call rather, to come now and diligently fellowship with God. It says long, like newborn babies. This is not something you do passively. So we've talked about this a lot in the course of years. This is the time to sit on the edge of your seat, Bible open, um, prayerfully as you study, pa- uh, study this passage, meditate on the, this passage, uh, uh, and, and fellowship with your Lord uh, together. So um, let's not sit back as lazy listeners, but let's sit up, listen, fellowship, and in the process pray, God, give me the grace to, uh, um, that's a pretty good music effect there, give me the grace by your grace to, uh, to fellowship and to uh, communion. Towards that end, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 123. And uh, Psalm 123 is now, I believe, our fourth psalm um, that we are looking at in this section on the Song of, of Ascents. In your bulletin is an outline. Make sure you locate that and use it to follow along, read the quotes, and, and take notes. Um, this is a section, as you know, that God gave to his, to his people living in exile to uh, give them uh, the words to sing and hence uh, words to memorize and words to implant deeply within ourselves in order to frame our thinking as we live as aliens and exiles in this world. So this is far more than just a song that we hum to. This is the words that God has given us to frame our thoughts and our mind as we live in this state of sin and misery. So with that, we come to the fourth song. The first three are detailed there in your notes, and the whole point of those songs. This fourth one is now another addition, and and a progressive um, addition to what we've already seen. Let me invite you to stand together with me as we read this portion of God's Word. Psalm 123. Hear now the word of our King. To thee I lift up my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall be gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with uh, contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Give us the grace, O Lord, to study diligently now, to listen and meditate and consider. Lord, to fight our wandering minds, but to spend, O Lord, this next 40 or so minutes fellowshipping with you. Hear our hearts, speak to us through your word, grow us in your grace. Lord, we entrust this time to you in Christ's name, amen. Amen, please be seated. In 445 BC, God's people living in Jerusalem had their back to the wall. To explain that in its better detail, let me give you a little bit of the history. I'm going to go back up to 586. You've got some of the notes in front of you. 586 B.C., the kingdom of Babylon came and attacked and vanquished the kingdom of Judah, God's people. And in vanquishing them, as is the habit of the ancient world, they transported more than 90% of the entire nation out of their geographic boundaries. So they transported all of the, the Jews and, and, and scattered them, dispersed them throughout the, the Babylonian Empire. Well, roughly 40 plus years later, 539, Cyrus, the Persian general, uh, rose up and he conquered the Babylonians. 
And in conquering the Babylonians to make peace in his land, he granted free access to, any, to his uh, populace that they could live wherever they wanted to. So God used that to raise up 42,360 Jewish men and women and children to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the uh, temple. In fact, Cyrus even gave them money. He gave them the, the, the temple um, um, devices so they could go and rebuild it. At his uh, command. So they got there, 42,360 Green Beret Christians. They were the ones who had enough faith and enough love and passion for God and his glory to go. They went and very quickly found that the project was a thousand times harder than they ever dreamt. And so they quickly withdrew. They, they did a little of clearing of the Temple Mount. But then they focused on their own homes. Building them up, well-paneled houses, as the text reads. Um, so God in 520 sent two prophets, Hosea and Zechariah. I'm sorry, Haggai and Zechariah, not, not Hosea. Um, and those two prophets stimulated, pro, uh, proclaimed God's word such that God's people began to work on the temple in 520. They built it in uh, its uh, completion in 516. The temple's built. The worship of God is restored. Well, a lot of political intrigue and stuff went on from 516 forward. We read a lot about it, learned a lot about it when we looked at Esther, Esther details the first uh, uh, Punic War, not the first, the second, uh, a Persian-Greek War, but the first and second are taking place during this time. And that brings us up to 458. 458, and God's people, though they had a, a temple, the temple was compromised, his worship. God's people were morally compromised. God's people were not following God. And word got out throughout the empire of Persia. And that prompted many Jews who were concerned about God and his worship and his temple and their uh, religion to, to, to migrate in two separate migrations, th- two more returns to Palestine. One in 458 led by Ezra. The book of Ezra is written at this time. And he came as the priest and he, he uh, purified the worship of God and purified God's people, telling them to put away their foreign wives, etc., etc., Well, another migration occurred in 445, which is where I started. 445, God's people's backs were against the wall. This was when Nehemiah was the uh, aide of the king in Persia, heard of the welfare of God's people and how horrible they were being treated, realizing that what they needed was protection, that protection would come from a wall, and there was no wall. So he was sent by the king of Persia at that point to go over to Palestine and to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem in 445. Well, when he got there, just like Moses, when he right, came to Pharaoh and said, hey, let my people go. Every time he went and talked to him, it made it rough for God's people. That's exactly what happened to Nehemiah. He came there and we're going to rebuild these city walls with the three governors set there by the Persians. The three governors felt a threat by their power, and so they went out and attacked God's people. And we're not talking just, you know, easy. They murdered people. They attacked God's people. They threatened lives. Um, We read about it in Nehemiah chapter 4, 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. It came about that when Sanballat, he was the governor over Syria in uh, Samaria, when he heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious, strong words, very angry, and mocked the Jews. When you think of the mocking, you got to think of Christ, how he was mocked. So this wasn't just, you know, words, sticks and stones may break my bones. This was major. They mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble, foolish, stupid Jews doing? Are they going to restore the... um, it for themselves can they offer sacrifices meaning will they pray the thing up can they finish in a day and the the implication beyond that is no it's going to take them months if not a year it's a big task can they finish in a day can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble even the burned ones now uh, Tobiah the Ammonite he was over an uh, Arab tribe south of Palestine he was the the uh, leader there Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Now you hear this passage and you go, you know, again, sticks and stones may break my bones. It's a big deal that they're saying it. Brothers and sisters, this, that's what they're saying. But what they're saying is matched by, by, by activity. They were attacking God's people. Sanballat put out a, uh, an assassination squad against Nehemiah. He tried to kill him. 
In fact, it was so bad that Nehemiah had to divide the forces in Nehemiah chapter 4 and have one half of the forces of those building the city walls, which, by the way, was one and a half to two and a half miles in circumference. It's a small group of people trying to rebuild those walls. Well, he had to divide the force, the workforce, in two, having one half build while the other half stood guard with spear and bow and arrow and breastplate and, uh, um, and armor. So it was very dangerous. In verse 17, it says, So the builders built with one hand they had, they had um, uh, tools to build, and the other hand they had weapons. They held, they held their knives. That's how bad it was. Why am I giving you this history? Okay, this history is relevant because... Well, we don't know the specific problem of Psalm 123, verses uh, 3b and 4, which we're going to start with. We don't know what what was behind 3b and 4. We know it was something like what, what Nehemiah experienced. We know this because, first of all, the 15 Psalms written in this section, five of which were written, four of which by David, one by Solomon, they would have been before this era. But the other 10 Psalms, this was one of them, would have been written in the era right before, during, or after Nehemiah. So what they're facing, that's a good taste of what God's people were facing when this psalm was written. And that it, thus, it was this psalm that God used to encourage God's people living in the diaspora, in the dispersion, where they were not, they were not a nation, they were not a, a people who could protect themselves, but a people who were easily the object of ire, hatred, and attack throughout world history, throughout church history. So God gave this psalm to speak to that context. Notice with me, if you would, the setting. Verse 3b, the psalmist wrote, For we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Brothers and sisters, there's two key words here in their very intense words. The first one is contempt, buzz. It speaks of extreme hatred and so is translated as despise, scorn, or utterly despise. When this word is used, murder is not far away. That's this word. We are filled with this contempt. We are the object of, of people's plots to kill us. The next word, scoffing, la'og, which is an extreme form of mocking and derision. It's the word for blasphemy. In fact, it's what's behind Christ's statement in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, whoever says, shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So we hear that word, we go, it's not a big deal. No, this was a big deal. What's behind the word fool in Matthew 5 is the, is the contempt and scoffing of Psalm 123. So bad that if you do that, you are liable to hell. The fires of hell, says Jesus. Now, would you notice that the text, it, it, it twice uh, says it, we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with scoffing. What that tells us is, is that, it got into the people's souls. It rattled them. As I said, it wasn't sticks and stones. This rattled God's people. I mean, imagine living in this time, in this place. You got your little homestead that you came, and your, your grandparent in 530, you know, or 538 came and claimed that house. It's a beautiful, you know, um, wonderful plantation, whatever. And then you've got, you're a little bit north, you're not uh, 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 protected, and your child went out, your, your children out playing, and these Ammonites came through and just, just slayed them. That's what was going on. They lived in a time where being a child of God was, was a death sentence. It was hard. And that's what God's people have lived with throughout world history. We are, in one sense, fortunate not to face that. But nevertheless, brothers and sisters, the time's coming, and now is, when the world in which we live is going to take their hatred and ire out on you and me. That's the setting. You got a quote there from Boyce. You can read it. I'm not going to read it. But that's the setting. So what are we to do? Okay, that's the setting of all of these psalms. Okay, what are we to do? 
Are we to gaze upon those problems and let them move us and shake us like Psalm 120? I lift up my eyes to the mountain of problems upon me. Is that where your gaze is? This psalm comes and does a play on words, so to speak. Taking the lifting up of our eyes on the problems, this psalm comes and says, notice with me now the recourse, verse 1a, to God I lift my eyes. Now again, this psalm um, is written to instruct God's people. He gave them, a, he, give, he gives us a song. He places it in our mouth. And that song is these songs of 100, you know, these 15 songs. And this song was designed for us not to be entertained as we, as we traveled, right? They were written to frame our thinking. Um, I've, I've heard this from many sources. Most recently, Robert Godfrey, when his study of the, the Psalms. And his statement is that the beauty of the Psalter, and that's why as you age, they become more precious to you. The beauty of the Psalter is the Psalter, God anticipates that you and I are going to go through the full gamut of emotion and struggles on this earth. From, from being joyed, overjoyed, to being angry and frustrated with God and everything in between. Sorrowful, sad, struggling with sin, tempta- uh, attempted, people who have fallen into sin multiple times. All of that is anticipated. And what the Psalter does, it gives us words to express them to God. It gives us a mind and a vocabulary. It frames our thinking so that we don't go off the edge. Well, this psalm God gave us so that we would know how to handle trials and difficulties of this world. And you know how we're called to handle them? What's the text say? To thee I lift my eyes. Our call is to teach ourselves to go to God in trial, first and foremost. Our temptation, what do we do? Our what do we typically do? When we have difficult times, what do we do? We, we typically either we uh, cocoon, we go within ourselves, we, we, we self-medicate, we self-do it. We, 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 you know, if I feel threatened, I get a gun. If I, if I feel like you know, things are, are difficult, whoop, I still have a good bank uh, account. Right? We look horizontally. We look within. We deal with it by slander and anger and frustration or defense. Name it. God teaches us in this psalm, brothers and sisters, that you and I have to work at how to respond to disappointment. And that work means teaching our souls to go first to God. You got the quote there, Spurgeon. We must use our eyes with resolution, for they will not go upward to the Lord of themselves. But they, will inc- but they incline to look downward or inward or anywhere but to the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, first off, understand this psalm, the context, verses 3b through 4, is one of, of intense difficulty that's rattled you to your bone. The diagnosis of cancer, the death of a loved one, name it, the, the loss of a job. I mean, what's your context? What's rattling you today? And your call is to, as a Christian, is to take those burdens first and foremost to the Lord. That's where you go. We see it in James 1, brothers and sisters. You, I've, I've referenced this before. James 1, 2, consider all joy, speaking to persecuted Christians. Consider all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then he says, and this is key, but let endurance have its perfect result. Do you understand what that means? It's from this that the Puritans got the idea of improving upon our suffering. Our job as Christians is to improve upon the sufferings God gives us. We go through trial and difficulty, and our job is not to allow them to overwhelm us. Our job, and we can do this as our job because we've got Christ. Presumption here, you've got Christ. If Christ is your Savior and Lord, then your job is to teach your flesh, teach your soul to turn first and foremost to God. That's our calling. That's something we do. We just sang it. It's interesting. I don't know where my bulletin now is. But we just sang a hymn where the very um, end of the, of the line, I just thought it was fantastic. Um, 
complete, not uh, complete, the uh, psalm, where he's, he says this, from age to age shall men be taught what wondrous works the Lord has wrought. That's something, you, it's not, you're not born with it, guys. You've got to be taught it. And what do you got to be taught? Not only about how great God is, but what to do with trial and difficulty. You got to be taught, which means you got to teach your soul. As he says in Psalm uh, uh, 23 or, or verse 1, to thee I lift up my eyes. That's something you got to work at. All right, that's the recourse. That then brings us then to the glorious assurance um, in the context of lifting up my eyes. Just by way of foot, and I skipped a, a bunch of verses uh, uh, quickly. Uh, David, Psalm uh, 61. David prayed uh, for this. Right? He prayed, when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What's he doing? He's saying, he's saying, God, when I'm struggling, teach me to turn to you. Because that's not natural. Right? Uh, Jeremiah, oh Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of distress. Do you understand, guys? That's something Jeremiah had to learn. Korah, same thing. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. When we're through trouble, he's the one that we go to. And this translated in David's life in a beautiful way. Listen to it, Psalm 61. It was such a blessing. Having prayed what he just prayed, notice what he does. My soul, wait in silent for God only. This makes me think of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. What's David doing here? My soul, wait in silence for God only. What's he doing? He's talking to himself. This, has David gone out of his mind? He's talking to himself. He's saying, Greg, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. What's he doing? Brothers and sisters, as Lloyd-Jones points out, this is a key part of spiritual maturation as Christians. It's stop listening to your flesh and start talking to yourself. Telling it where to get off. Telling it what to think. Telling it what to say and do. The more passive we are, the more of a victim we will be. I put that in quotes. You know, oh, God's horrible. Of course I'm going to doubt him. No, you're not, soul. You will not go there. I know that's what you want to do because you're in sin. You're a sinner and you want to rebel against God. But you're not going to do that, my soul. Wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. He's done talking to himself. Now he turns to you and me. Trust in God at all times, O peoples. Pour out your heart before him, not before one another, not in slander, not in gossip, but before him. God is a refuge for us. So that's our recourse. Now let's notice with me the assurance. So you go, okay, I'm going to do that, but what good is that? Well, verse 1b, to thee I lift up my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Well, you can already imagine what that means. He's enthroned in the heavens. What does that mean? Well, if you look at that phrase, it's a common phrase in Scripture, especially in the the poetry books. If you look at that in the the prophets, you'll see this used and modified. So, for example, it helps us understand what it means. Isaiah 66. Isaiah wrote, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Okay, so God's enthroned in the heavens tells us God is the one who reigns over this world. Heaven's his throne. Earth is where he places his feet. So he's in charge of the earth. He oversees everything going on in this, in this world. In other words, he calls the shots. Another one, Isaiah or Psalm 115.3. Listen to this one. But our God is in the heavens. His throne's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That modifies it. Because God's throne is in the heavens. God does whatever he wants. Do you understand what that means? That means Genesis 50, 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God ordains the hairs on your head. God ordains when a a bird falls on the ground. God ordains everything. He's the king of kings. The Lord of Lords, the one ruling potentate of this world. 
He's the ruler. So, brothers and sisters, when you and I are beat up, when you and I are threatened and our backs are to the wall, what do you do? Well, you can turn to horizontal help, but what is that when you've got God Almighty at your disposal? Right? Why would you look horizontally? Why would you look within, soul, when you've got God who's enthroned in the heavens, emphasizing his sovereign care? Because of this, Psalm 2, if you want to turn there, you can, please. 1 through 5, I'm I'm going to read them. Listen to what this psalm says. It's incredible. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? This is a prophecy, brothers and sisters, a prophecy of the world that would, uh, from Psalm 2 until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this is a prophecy of our world and what this world's doing and God's response to it. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel again, uh, uh, together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the fall occurred because man wanted autonomy from God? And that's in your heart. We want autonomy from God. We want to be separate, individual, free from any of God's regency or control. And guess what? That's in our hearts. You know that. But it's also in the heart of the non-believer. And that comes out with this passion to attack God, Christianity, Christ. Islam could throw homosexuals off of 20-story buildings. And the liberals in in our uh, world say, good. Now say a word. Christians can say God's word says that that's a sin. And we will be, we'll lose jobs. We'll be attacked. Why is that? Why the disparity? Because brothers and sisters, the world loves Islam. They love all of the false and foreign religions and cults. They love them all. They might sit with a, a, a distance. Hmm, Hare Krishna, that's a little odd. But we respect them and we love them and we support their right to be. But you mentioned Jesus Christ in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you will be attacked. You'll be, you'll be uh, uh, in fact, if not today, it will come in, in the, our kids' or our grandkids' generation. You will be martyred. It's going on throughout the entire world right now. Attacking people because they name Christ. Killing them because they hate Christ. That's our world. They've, the, the nations of the world have counseled together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the world in which we live. They say, let us tear off their fetters apart and let's cast away their cords from us. We don't want their laws. We don't want their um, influence. We don't want God's authority or his sovereignty. Kick them out. But you know what God's response is? Because he's the sovereign Lord. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. You know what? I would be concerned as a Christian if I looked up to God. Verse 1, I lifted my eyes unto the Lord and I saw God up there going, you know, you guys are scary. You're going to hurt my Jesus. Yeah, right? My uh, Messiah. God, do you hear their threats? You look up to God and what is God doing? He's laughing. Right? I, I remember as a little kid, I didn't know my dad was present. And this big bully was there. And I'm up there going, you know, frightened to uh, to death. And I went, you know, I opposed him. And he ran. And I thought, I thought, incredible. And I looked back and my dad was standing there, right? Brothers and sisters, he was laughing at the little taunts of a 12-year-old, you know? I'm going to take honey and put it on your face and call and get bees, (laughs) you know? (sighs) My dad's like, hey. You know, God sits in the heavens. He scoffs at this. What can they do? They can, the, the body they may kill, but they can't kill us. Right? So amazing. He sits in the heavens. He laughs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. That's on the day of judgment. And what's our response? As for me, I've installed my king to trust upon Zion, my holy mountain. As for me, soul, you're worshiping him. But your flesh says, I want autonomy. And what he's done is not fair. He's a horrible God. Stop it. I will not let you do that, soul. Trust in God. Lift up your eyes unto the Lord. That's what this psalm is teaching us.
Now you go, oh, hey, Greg, I appreciate that. God is sovereign. I learned that from Psalm 120. God's in control of all things. I learned that in Psalm 121 and 122. God's sovereignly control of all things. And, 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 and thankfully from Psalm 121, in my burdens, I'm not going to blame God now. Okay, got that. All right, I got to make sure I don't blame him. But brothers and sisters, I got a problem with God's sovereignty. I struggle with why he does what he does. God, why, why would you appoint a person to be, to be killed like that? Why would you cause such grief and misery in my life? Why are you doing what you're doing? And that's why this psalm was written. So that, that what makes Psalm 123 unique and distinct from 121, 22, 120, 21, and 22 is not the first three points. The first three points is a repeat. Just more graphic and more detail here. What's the point? The point is Psalm, what the middle of the Psalm, what it's pointing to is verse 2B and 3A. Okay? Notice the consolation. Verse 2 Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. We're going to stop right there for a moment. This is another Hebrew or another Bible literary tool. It's another tool of the, the Bible. We've seen mirisms. We've seen different, right? This is known as progressive parallelism. Now, it's helpful that you understand what these are. Now, you know what this is. I've talked a lot about it. Progressive parallelism is where the Bible will make a statement, repeat the statement, but progress it in thought. You got in your, your bullets on the back side in this note, Psalm, Psalm 99. I'm not going to spend time on it. Look at the bold. Look at the underlines, and you'll see this psalm progresses in two different ways. It repeats twice, two different things, right? And it progresses the thought. That's progressive parallelism. Well, what's the, what's the, the focus of this verse? From the male servant to the me, female servant, what's the progression? It's, it's, it's a repetition, and it's a, but it uh, progresses. What's a, a progression of? It's a progression of weakness, it's a progression of need and vulnerability. Okay? That's us in this world. I'm in need. I just lost my job. You're vulnerable. You just got cancer. Um, I'm hurting. I just lost a loved one. We have various degrees of, of vulnerability, of hurt, of pain, of need. And so just as those those servants, notice, look to the hand of their mistress or master. So the picture is this. They're house slaves, and they know that if they miss a command of their, of their lord or their mistress, their life could be up for grabs. So you're vulnerable. You have very little power, very little ability to dictate anything about your life. That's the Christian. That's all men, to be honest. But, we well, but we're aware of it. The non-Christians aren't. We're aware. We have very little power to determine what's going to happen, right? What do those maids and mistresses do? Or servants and maids do? What do they do? Their eyes are lasered on the hand of their master or mistress. Why? Because if they miss the smallest gesture which says clear the table, they get in trouble. So their eyes are, are, are lasered in on the hand of their master, okay? Now, notice verse 2. The parallel here is not the threat against the maid and the mistress, which in life, or the servant and the mistress, a maid, which, in li which at this time was death. That's not what he's getting at. He's ignoring that. What he's focusing on is the gaze. Notice uh, to be. So our eyes look um, to the Lord our God. The emphasis here is on God's transcendence and his sovereignty. Just as their finger, they're, they're lasered in on those hands, we're lasered in to looking upon our Lord, our God the, God, the God who's enthroned in the heavens. Notice the words, Yahweh, Lord, Yahweh, speaks of, of his um, self-existence, his transcendency, the fact that he is in and of himself. That's who our trust is. And then the word God, Elohim, is the word that refers to him as a ruler. That, that name, that title, is describing him as the ruler of the world. He is the transcendent one who is ruling all things 
unto his glory, honor, and praise. So our eyes look to the Lord, our master. So the point of parallel here is not on the consequence or the, conse- or the result of fear, right? The human slave or, or maid, she could die, if, he could die if they miss it. That's not the point of comparison. The point of comparison is how transfixed their eyes are upon their, their master. And that's the point for us. Transfix your eyes on God. Why? Because if you miss a command, he'll get you? Nope. That's the earthly servant. Because if you miss a command, guess what you're going to miss? You're going to miss beholding the glory of the grace and mercy of God. Look how the text ends. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall be gracious. In the Hebrew, it's an imperfect, which is as close as you can get to a future. The idea is this. This is not saying, hopefully he will be. It's he's going to be gracious. God, by definition, is gracious, merciful. Your translations probably say merciful. That's the primary word here. That is a word here. Um, we, we look to God because he's going to be gracious. That's the idea how how you should translate until till he's going to be gracious and then he says be gracious O lord be gracious to to us brothers and sisters three times you hear the word gracious or the word mercy i'm gonna start using the word mercy instead of grace three times we read mercy now in the center here that's another literary tool right in the progressive parallelism you've got word placement or repetition. You have Christ saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Why do you say truly, truly? Did he have a stuttering problem? No. He's emphasizing. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Emphasize. Anytime you, the Bible says something three times, it's to the nth degree. Two means this is important. Three times, nth degree. Just keep on saying it. How many times do you read a gracious here or mercy here? Three times. The psalmist is saying this. When you look to the Lord... You know what you're going to see? If you see God clearly, now your flesh is fighting against you. Your ignorance is fighting against you. Your lack of knowledge of God's words fighting against you. But if you look at God in his essence, when you lift up your eyes, do you know what you're going to see? Mercy. A merciful being. Incredible. That's the focus here. By way of three times, it's telling you, this song is about you and I transfixing our hearts and minds on the kind, gracious attributes of God, his mercy. Let's define it. Mercy um, is, um, the quality of mercy is that it is given to the pitiful, the weak, the undeserving, and so the wretched. In this case, to God's children who have endured great abuse at the hands of the powerful and arrogant, and even now their lives are in danger. Randy Steele, my old pastor, noted, quote, Mercy is described as kindness exercised towards the miserable, Hodge. Burkhoff says it's the, goodness of, it's the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of their deserts. And Wilhelmus Abraco wrote, It is an essential attribute whereby God is inclined to come to the aid of the creature in his misery. He says, look at God. And what you should be thinking about God in your sense of, your sinful sense, right? Your autonomous flesh says, how dare God do this to me? If he loved me, right? You're going to say, Flesh, I'm going to tell you where you to get off. We're going to gaze upon the fact that the essential nature of God is he's good. Now, our flesh doesn't believe that. Our flesh disagrees with that. But that's where we're talking to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. God essentially is good. He's merciful. The emphasis here is his mercy. This word, thus mercy, Hanan, speaks of the radical nature of our God. He's not put off by our weaknesses, arrogance, or laziness. He is not offended by our sin. Even right now, some of you going through hardship might be going, God, that doesn't offend God. I mean, imagine if Satan were ruling this land and you did that to Satan. What do you suppose would have happened to you a long time ago? But you can sit there and all your, and sort of like that child with his lip out going, oh, I hate God. He's a mean God in our childishness. We don't understand. We don't see God for who he is. 
We let our flesh dictate our thoughts. And so we, we of course, think independent, autonomous thoughts and think God's the enemy. That's, of course, what our fallen flesh wants, and that's what Satan wants. But this psalm says, don't do that, Christian. Tell your flesh where where to get off. Teach your soul. Teach your flesh to gaze upon what? God and his sovereignty? Well, yeah, he's certainly stressed there. But more importantly, the center of the psalm, God in his grace and his mercy. His mercy indicates that he does not uphold us with a a lecture or a stern look of disapproval. He does it freely, willingly, joyfully, and zealously. Do you remember Dave Ortland's comment in Gentle and Lowly? I, if those of you who are in the class. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. A few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing it's the whole reason he came how much more if if the diseased are not strangers but his own family so with us and so with christ he does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness that's the whole point it's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. So brothers and sisters, understand this is a huge tool for your soul. God's love, his grace, his kindness is that alone which buoys you in the storm. Now, guys, you're going to hear this and say, that's your opinion. No, it's fact. And that's what you and I need to teach our souls. What buoys us is not, well, I'm memorizing scripture. I'm doing more holy habits. Do the holy habits. But those aren't what's going to buoy you. What buoys you is you and I gazing upon who your God is. I'll give you some examples of that. David committed egregious sin. He, he committed, I would say, rape. He raped Bathsheba. I mean, what's she going to say? No to the king? He rapes her. He gets her pregnant. He lies about it. He murders her husband. This is King David. It's one of the beautiful things about God's word. Our heroes are sinners, right? So we, we don't want to worship David we will worship God. Our heroes are not these supernatural people. These, these guys are low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrels. That was David at this point in his life. But what did he do? Did he run from God? I mean, if you had done all those things today, what would you do? Would you be here? Would you be coming and sharing, you know, putting your arms around people? Or would you be, if we knew about it, would you be running? The whole kingdom knew about this sin, these sins of David. And you know what David did when the, whole king, when the whole kingdom discovered it? Right? Nathan said, thou art the man. Do you remember that? What did David do? Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. You know why David approached God? Because David knew God was loving That's what buoyed him. And you'll find this repeated throughout Scripture. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the grace of God that lifts us up. It's not his, the fear of judgment. When Paul encouraged us to be holy, he didn't say, by the wrath of Almighty God. What did he say, Romans 12? By the mercies of God. I appeal to you, present your body to him as a living and holy sacrifice. Do it because you see the glory and the grandeur of his kindness, of his, of his love, of his mercy. The publican, the tax collector, one of the worst, lowest scums in Jewish culture, knew he was scum. So what did he do? Did he run from God? No, we read, but the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, what? Be merciful to me, 
a sinner. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that's what buoys us. That's the hull of your ship. On top of this are our beautiful theologies of, of, of the holiness of God and all the systematic theologies that we have, but it rides upon the grace, the goodness, the love of God. The love of Christ controls us. That's what God's intent is. Our love for him, our understanding of his love for us is what should control us in our lives. It's what buoys us, right? It's the whole of our vessel. Psalm 94, 17. I, I can go on and on. There's a whole lot of verses. Psalm 94. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If God hadn't been helping me, I'd be dead. Okay, well, how was God helping him? If I should say, think, believe, that's the idea behind that. If I should say my foot has slipped, thy loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations delight my soul. Do you know what lifts, lifts up us in our time of woe and weakness? The love of God. And what is the one thing that your flesh attacks first and foremost? I dare say there are very few people here who have a struggle believing God's in charge of all things. I think we all agree with that. That's why we blame him. We blame him because God's in charge of all things. When difficulty comes, it's God's fault. But every one of us here, every one of us here by default have a problem believing God is loving. This psalm is saying, Pilgrim, you want your eyes to be lasered, fixed on God's hand because that hand is the hand of love. Now, if you doubted that, walk with me on this one. I'm closing now. If you doubt that, I want you to right now picture yourself, close your eyes, open your eyes, whatever you want to do. Picture yourself in the hall of the Lord. You're his maid servant, you're his servant. And this psalm says, focus your eyes upon the hand of your Lord. If you focus your eyes on the hand of the Lord, what will you see, Christian? The nail prints that proclaim the grace and the love and the glory of God for you. you got to teach your soul to get your eyes transfixed upon the hand of God, which now is a hand with the print of a nail that Jesus Christ, with which Jesus was fastened to the cross, in which God gave his son out of love for you, that you would not go to hell. So, brothers and sisters, that's the psalm. This psalm is in this section because that's what God is using, intends for us to frame our thinking as we live in this world. You say, Greg, so you're basically, you're telling me, ignore my concerns about God and X, Y, Z and focus on his, on his goodness, his character of love and grace and mercy. Exactly. And the beautiful thing about this is we're not saying be Christian science, right? We're what we think Christian scientism believes that you can manipulate the physical world by your thinking, right? So if I think only good thoughts, I'll never have cancer. Mary Baker, Barry, Mary Baker whatever, Eddie, died. She should never have died, but she died. Her, her religion of Christian science didn't, didn't heal her, right? That's what they teach. You can manipulate reality by what you think. So think good thoughts, your reality will be good. You can create your own world. That's not this. This is calling you to focus on reality, on the facts. And the fact is, your God is good. And you and I have to teach and instruct ourselves to not listen to our flesh, which says, Oh, yeah, I don't understand that, God. Therefore, I conclude, logically, as logical as I am, because I'm such a rational being, God must not be good. <laughs> Tell your irrational side of yourself, your flesh, to get off. Tell it where to get off. Get off the bus right here because God is good. And it's upon that I will spend my days and my nights meditating. I'm not going to meditate upon 
the silly laws that were just passed. I'm not going to meditate upon the fact that they're doing this in our culture. They're doing that in our, our culture. I'm going to meditate upon the character of my God. And when that happens, guess what's going to happen? The valley of weeping will become a spring. Psalm 81. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace to be faithful with this ministry he's given us to live as sinners in a state of sin and misery, but as pilgrims of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. We're so grateful for your word and the incredible emphasis of this psalm. And it's didactic. It's, it's teaching um, um, ability. It's, it's use. It's function in the lives of us, your people. Father, this is something we just sang earlier from the, the psalm, that something that every generation needs to learn again and afresh. Give us grace, O Lord, as parents, to teach, this, to teach this to our kids. May the one thing they get from us not be our propensity to fear, our propensity to criticism, or our propensity to, to anger. May our, the, the, the one thing they get from us is a propensity to trust a good God. You are God. Father, we pray, soul mold and shape us that we would indeed take upon in our hands the weapons of of your word, the weapons of our warfare, and allow it to frame our thinking as we think upon you. God, we praise you that you are a good God, that it is your loving kindness that lifts us up. It's your mercy that we appeal to as sinners. Lord, it's your loving kindness is the base upon which we, like David, come to you and say, Oh God, be merciful. On your tender, loving kindness, forgive and blot out our sin. Because of your loving kindness, oh God, give us the grace to think properly. To not view ourselves, oh God, as victims, but as bullets in your arsenal, weapons. That you, some of those weapons, O oh Lord, you use to do dirty work. Some of those weapons you choose to honor. Lord, grant us the grace that whatever lot we are in, we view ourselves as your weapon, wielded for this purpose, which we don't understand ultimately, but the purpose of suffering or the purpose of want or the purpose of singleness, the, the purpose of um, isolation, Lord. Um, Father, the purpose of suffering. Grant us the grace, O oh Lord, not to take that and conclude, but to take that and understand you've commissioned us to this purpose, that we might proclaim the glory and the greatness of you, our God. So, Lord, give us the grace to do that, to proclaim the glory of your love, the depths, the weight 